Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to John chapter 1. We were there last week, we'll be there today and for the next two Sundays, John chapter 1. As we look to God's word, let's once again go to him in prayer and ask for his aid in our understanding. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, We thank you for providing for all of our needs. We thank you for your word, uh, indeed, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Father, be pleased to use your word as your spirit gives us understanding and changes us to more and more desire to put into practice your truth. Father, meet with your gathered people now. Help us to receive, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your wonderful truth, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, get overwhelmed, um, especially this time of year, it seems, with email, um, and I'm sorry to add to your overwhelming quantity of email. And and yesterday I got out a couple of uh, emails regarding lessons and carols, and one of them uh, both sent a link and also had an attached file of of this article that I read every year when I discovered it a few years uh, calling Keeping Christmas in Christianity. Uh, Keeping Christmas in Christianity, a festival of nine lessons and carols. It's written by the pastor of um, uh, Christ Reformed Church in downtown Washington, D.C. I just want to read uh, the first few paragraphs as I think it sets the stage well for where we are today. In the typical battle for Christmas banter, we hear a lot about keeping Christ in Christmas and preserving Christmas as a Christian holy day. Jesus is the reason for the season and all that. But as a pastor, I think the far bigger battle for believers is keeping Christmas and Christ in Christianity. The true spirit of Christmas is something that most of our churches could use far more of. 52 Sundays a year, the trick is to cut through all the sentimental and grasp this holiday's essential value for deepening our Christian faith. Our church will celebrate Christmas with our annual festival of nine lessons and carols. A traditional Christmas Eve liturgy first celebrated at King's College, Cambridge in 1918. While this service is beautiful and moving, it is a highlight of our church year because it teaches a simple and profound truth simply, that the coming of Christ fulfills the central promise of the Bible. And he goes on, and this will be the last quote. The Lessons in Carol service reminds us of a basic interpretive key. Jesus is the center of the whole Bible, and that truth should guide how we read and apply these texts. Promise and fulfillment is the basic pattern of the Old and New Testaments of the Christian Bible. Jesus and his apostles viewed his coming as the fulfillment of centuries of promises delivered to the people of God, and the New Testament was written in support of this case. In an age of biblical illiteracy, we mustn't underestimate the value of this simple lesson. Indeed, it is the Christmas story as found in the Bible, which is at once familiar but foreign and unfamiliar. We know that there are birth narratives in Matthew going back to Abraham and to Luke who goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. 
Those of you with us in Mark's, our study of Mark's gospel, remember Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner, introducing the ministry of Jesus. But John, the fourth gospel, goes back further. He goes back to the beginning. He goes behind the scenes to eternity past. It's as if the curtain is lifted and we are given a glimpse of eternity past. And he does that in the prologue of his gospel, uh, the first 18 verses. It's a preface to the narrative that really will start in verse 19. It's like a symphony's prologue. It, 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 it brings themes that you will later hear in the full symphony out and it draws you and invites you in. It's been said somewhere that, excuse me, that somewhere that nowhere else in the New Testament is so much said with such an economy of words, speaking of John's prologue. As we said last week, the gospel, according to John, is so simple. Children memorize it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it's also is what some people on their deathbeds want to hear, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. It's a pool safe enough for children to wade in and yet deep enough for an elephant to drown. As I mentioned, the prologue will introduce themes that will unfold in this account, John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And whereas the rest of John is about Jesus' earthly ministry, the prologue, these first 18 verses, about, is about Jesus' eternal identity. Remember we said last week, and it's worth repeating, that John wrote his first letter to assure those who believe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. Well, here in John 20, 31, we, we read that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. We're here for four weeks. Advent series, Christmas Presents. Christmas presents. One of God's great promises running from beginning to end is his promise to be with his people. And the incarnation is where we see that promise fulfilled completely. Last week in Jesus is from the beginning, we, we saw that Jesus is introduced as the eternal, personal, divine word of God. The word that was with God and the word that was God is also, as we will see in verse 14, Emmanuel. God with us. The gift of Jesus and his promise to always be with us, his Christmas presence is what we all need and what we all should be increasingly wanting to have. Today we're in verses 3 through 5. Jesus is the light and the life. Next week, Jesus comes into the world. And then finally, Jesus makes God known. A few words about the incarnation. It's important. The incarnation is absolutely essential. There's no salvation apart from the incarnation. The second person of the eternal trinity becoming man. Not losing anything of his divine nature. Assuming human nature mysteriously together in the person of Jesus Christ. 
You may remember from the something to think about quote from J.I. Packer's Knowing God last week. He says this, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery. And so the incarnation is both important and mysterious. Now, for those of you with us in the adult class, I um, quoted something from J.C. Ryle, the 19th century English evangelical Anglican bishop, and I was greatly comforted. Uh, I was in his commentary um, the other day, and this is some tough, I mean, the first few verses of John, if you haven't figured this out already, are, are tough to get the plane off the ground. It's rolling down the runway for a long time. And I was greatly comforted uh, when I read these words at the end of his section of uh, verses 1 through 5. He says this, I cannot close these notes on the opening verses of St. John's Gospel without expressing my deep sense of the utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast and sublime truths which the passage contains. He then goes on to talk about his efforts to do that. And then he says this, But after saying all that I have said, I feel as if I had only faintly touched the surface of the passage. There is something here which nothing but the light of eternity will ever fully reveal. Thank you, Bishop Ryle. And thanks, I think that helps all of us. Well, let's read John 1, 1 through 5, and then uh, probably 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then picking up in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, the word that was with God and the word that was God in the beginning is also the word that made the world. John is teaching that Jesus is the agent of creation. We read in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. Paul the apostle recognizes this. The author to Hebrews said, it's speaking of the son through whom he also created the world. He creates life, both physical life and, as we will see in predominance, spiritual life. Now, why is this important? Why is this significant? Why does it matter to have verse 3, all things were made through him? And he could have ended there, but he wanted to say, emphasize it. And without him was not anything that was made. That's John's technique of underlining, bold-facing. Uh, highlighting. It's saying the same thing kind of negatively as well. 
Well, Romans 1, we read, In the things that have been made, that is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. And yet, what do people do? They suppress the truth. You see, man wants to be autonomous. Man wants to be the maker of all things, including himself. But Scripture is clear. God is the author of life. God is the creator. It's a fundamental truth. Who made you owns you. I mean, think about kids. You you make a project. You make a craft. You own it. You're the creator. You're the maker. And until you decide to give it away or sell it, it's yours. Man, as we see in Romans 1, has a fundamental problem with, as it were, acknowledging being created by God because they know that that means they are owned by God and are responsible to God. So the word that was with God and the word that was God, John wants us to know also that it's the word that made all things. The word, as it were, that made the world. Now, in verses 4 and 5, what we see is three themes that John is going to introduce for the rest of his gospel. Life, light, and darkness. Uh, First of all, what does God do? He he creates life. Jesus is the life, we we read in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, 36 times in John is the word light. Double the amount of any other New Testament book. Light is a theme in John's gospel. For example, we heard earlier in John 5, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted for the Son also to have life in himself. Life, 36 times. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Of course, John 3.16, that life is not just an unending life, but it's a different quality of life. Remember in John 10.10, Jesus says that the thief comes only to do what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. But, But I came that they might have life and have it have life abundantly. So a major theme that is introduced here is that Jesus is the life. He has the life. He possesses the life. He gives the life. He grants the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. So what does all this mean? Again, Jesus is the source of life. Life is found in Him. And it comes through Him. It's through God's Word that Christ's life comes to us. So he's going to move now between speaking of life to light. And there's a connection between life and light. That life in Christ, how does it come? It comes as light shining in the darkness. Jesus is the light. And just like life is a theme throughout John's gospel, so is light. It runs throughout the writings of John, both in his gospel and in his first letter. For example, here are just two. I am the light of the world. We remember from our study of 1 John 1, God is light. And I could go on to say, in Him there is no darkness at all, but God is light. 
And what does this light do? It shines in the darkness. It's, sometimes tenses are very important. And here it's very important. Uh, we read, the light shines. It's not the light shined once. No, it is continually shining in the darkness. It's active. It's ongoing. And we see that light reveals. We heard that in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 9, 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On him, on them, the light has come. Because John's gospel indicates that Jesus came to reveal God. Jesus will say in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a light shining, but it shines in the darkness. You go all the way back again to Genesis, the first few verses, the void the darkness, the emptiness, and then let there be light. And of course, this is the new creation through Jesus. The theme of darkness also, like life and like light, runs throughout the writings of John in his gospel and in his letter. John 3.19, after the wonderful John 3.16, we read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Light reveals, but also light guides. We hear this in John 8.12, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't that interesting? There's light and life together. Light reveals, light guides, light warms. It, it warms the heart so that the heart is changed fundamentally once and for all, but it ongo there's ongoing change. In John 12, we read, I, Jesus says, have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, John, in his first letter, says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And later in the second chapter, in terms of talking about love, he brings in light and darkness where he says this, At the same time, it is a new commandment, that is the commandment to love one another, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The light is shining in the darkness, the light of Christ, the light of the new creation, the light of the incarnation. And this light that shines in the darkness overcomes the darkness. We read in verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, for those of you reading, I think the New International Version, maybe a King James Version, maybe a New American Standard, you might see the word comprehend, that, that the, the darkness has not comprehended the light. Well, that's true in one sense because what does darkness have to do with light? And of course, the theme of good and evil. That, that the evil can't understand good. But the context, not only here, but throughout, uh, John would actually 
indicate that probably the best translation is what we see here in the ESV, that the darkness has not overcome it. One commentator, I believe it's D.A. Carson, uh, labels his section on this verse as a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. A masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Um, Is that his way of getting out of the tough stuff? I don't think so. I think it's actually insightful. Yes, the darkness doesn't comprehend the light, but but the really good news is the darkness gets overcome by the light. Kids, when I was some of your age, it was a Sunday morning. It, it, It had rained heavily that night and one of my jobs on an early Sunday morning was to go down and get something out of the basement. I can't remember what it was. And, and I walked down the steps, and at the last few steps, uh, somehow my feet started getting wet. And I heard splashing. And what, what had happened? The basement had flooded. Problem, two problems. One is I had not turned on the light at the top of the stairs. So I couldn't see what was down there. But what I needed was a bucket to bail out the water. You don't use a bucket to get rid of darkness. How do you get rid of darkness? You turn on the light, and the light cannot be overcome by darkness. You know, the Bible sometimes is hard to understand, but when the Bible brings things to our understanding that, oh, I can see in the day, I can't see in the night, that helps us you and me, finite creatures, limited in our ability and understanding to get some fundamental understanding and truth. Now, although the light will be opposed, and here we get a heads up, there's a battle going on, a spiritual war going on. This is a realistic view of life. Just because the light is shining does not say that it won't be opposed So it's a heads up that there's a battle. Although the light will be opposed, light will nonetheless be victorious. What confidence we have. What encouragement. That there's no amount of darkness that can actually extinguish light. But the littlest of light can remove the darkness. Now why is this important? Why is this significant? Well, with the theme of light and darkness What we even see here in these first few verses of John is the masterful themes of creation and fall and redemption and glory. We see the themes moving through Scripture, and we see now the theme of new creation. Why is this important? Because we need the light that is Jesus. We need the light of Jesus, and and John's gospel makes that clear. We both need revelation, the word, but we also need illumination. We need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of the word. So here, we've just spent the last few minutes in John John 1, 3 through 5. And, And here, we already see the word. And you should start thinking not only about the spoken word, but the written word and the incarnate word of light. The word of light. Light exposes and reveals. Now when you hear that light 
exposes and reveals. What's your response to that? Is that a good thing? Or is it a bad thing? Hebrews speaks of what? Uh, nothing is hidden, right? The thoughts and intentions of the heart are exposed in the light, as it were, of God's word. Well, I want to take you to a place that I've been in my life. I want to take you to a place that I've been with a lot of other people here recently. I have a little bit of knowledge of this on a pretty regular basis. I want to take you to the operating room, the OR. Surgery is not done in the dark. It's not. You've got OR lights above the table. And some of us may remember that's the last thing we saw before we woke up. You've also got powerful headlights on the surgeon, worn by surgeons, in order to see what they are doing. You see, the light is on. The light shines for us to expose the problem and to present and apply the solution. You see, that's what light does. It, it, it reveals. Jesus reveals the Father. It reveals sin. But it also reveals the way of escape from sin. It reveals the solution to sin. Psalm 36 verse 9 says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That, my friends, is leaning forward to a full proclamation of the gospel. If you would, as we draw to a close, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In view of what we've said about life and light and darkness, these three themes that John has introduced, I want us to hear what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in view of this light of the gospel. He writes, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Now listen to this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim to is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My friends, that is good news. That is great news. Are any of you all struggling with sin right now? Bring it into the light. Are any of you all discouraged, bordering on despair? Bring it into the light. 
the light is not just a smile, a good attitude. The light is not some wacko new age spirituality. The light is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And my friends, that light is where safety and security and joy and hope and peace is found. What a treasure that we have. It's no wonder that we are called to let our light, merely reflecting the light of Jesus, let our light shine. What a, what this church has received this gift of light, and we, by God's mercy, have this ministry to extend it to others. So why was this prologue written? Why were verses 3 through 5 written? These are not the easiest words to grasp, to understand. Nevertheless, they were written and preserved. John tells us these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that what? By believing, you may have life in his name. My friends, what kind of life? Eternal, everlasting, unending life that begins here and now in the midst of the trials and the tribulations and the temptations and the difficulties of life. It begins here and now. When we know Jesus Christ by faith. Amen. Father, we thank you for this prologue of John's gospel that indeed takes us to eternity past and shows us things that truly are beyond the limits of the finite mind. But, oh Lord, may you give us a hunger and thirst to see that the word that was God and the word that was with God is the word that made all things. It's the word that is life and the word that is light. And we thank you, Father, that this light, the light of Christ in us, the darkness cannot overcome, but rather the light chases the darkness away. For we pray and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.